are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. To hear more episodes, read about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. On today's episode, we're going to be having a conversation with Rural Vanderpool, a Belgian Marxist, uh, about a debate he's been having online with the self-described Marxist economist Paul Cockshot over what Marx's theory of value actually is and is not. Before we jump into that conversation, as we do in every episode of the podcast, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss some current events. And this podcast, we'll be talking about the movement to transform policing in America. In today's current events section, we're going to be talking about calls to defund or abolish the police. In our last current events section, one of the things we discussed was this iconic image of the police precinct burning in Minneapolis that sort of sparked the wave of early protests against police brutality across the world. And another icon- iconic image that uh, happened uh, not long after that was the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Frey, being booed out of a rally uh, because he refused to commit to abolishing the police department in Minneapolis. And, you know, I, if it had just been a one or two really radical people or parts of the movement that were calling for this, that would be one thing. But it's very, it was very striking to see this entire crowd of people chanting, Jacob, go home. Uh, it seems like the, the whole movement is behind uh, this, these kind of demands, which is really new and different in American politics. Right. And, and, and he, was, you know, he was pretty far to the left of the Democratic Party in terms of this issue. I mean, you know, he was not like Bill de Blasio or or, or Lori Lightfoot. You know, he he tried not to, not to like you know stop the protest and anything like that. Yeah, he was there at the protest with the Black Lives Matter face mask on. Yeah, yeah. And still, yeah. they were like, "Look, are you going to defund the police? And if you're not, we're going to vote you out of office next year." Right. And they booed him out so of think, the yeah. thing. It's amazing. Yeah, things have moved uh, a whole lot, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, the city council has a veto-proof majority, and they they, they passed the something to reimagine the police, basically get rid of it and, and start all over. So yeah, so the support, as you were saying, is really widespread. It's not just a few, you know, extremists, so to speak. People realize that it's not like a few bad apples; it's the entire orchard, you know, and you just you, you got to raise the entire orchard and, and start over so we want to talk with this question today can you change policing in america a deeply racist capitalist society can you really effectively change policing uh, in a meaningful way already we're seeing a a quick attempt by both political parties to to pacify the protest movement with all sorts of superficial changes sensitivity training more sort of top-down supervision uh, new regulations about what sort of lethal force police can use but it's all pretty it's all pretty superficial and the movement seems to be pushing way beyond those sort of demands right this is the 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 real problem as i see it The, the police violence is not you know a bug it's a feature 
A lot of people have been saying this. I'm, I'm surprised to see so much in the mainstream media about this. But people are saying, look, you know, it is the job of the cops. It has been designed or even created. I'm not sure about the creation part, but it, it, it's part of the design of what the, the police do is to terrorize and keep down oppressed communities, especially, you know, the, the, the black community. That's inherent in, in, in their job. So I, I think this is a case where the more radical calls are more realistic than the ones that seem less extreme which 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 try to straddle you know like let's 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 make the cops be good you know it's, it's kind of like let, let's, let's make capitalism you know work for the the interest of the working class <laughs> it, 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 those things like are, are, are just weird so by more radical calls more radical demands you mean like people saying that the police need to handle much smaller amount of things and we could farm out a lot of things that police are called for to other sorts of social services well i think that that's probably part of it the bigger problem is how do you keep poor people people who are beaten down systematically by racism how do you keep them down how do you keep them from arbitrary terror works that's what they found is that you can just you know pick up anybody harass them make them afraid for their life at any time and that keeps people down so i don't know that they have an, another way to, to do it I, you know it would be be much harder but um so i i, I think it's you know you, you 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 can take all kinds of social services and cordon them off and put in social workers and put in all kinds of things to deal with those problems but the the, the key problem from the, the standpoint of, of the ruling class is how do you keep the population down? So I, it, it really is a question of those police powers. Are those police powers going to be broken? You know, and so even so-called defunding, which is not really defunding in most cases, you know, it's cutting the budget, not eliminating it. Uh, even most of most of these proposals don't go to that issue. Whereas the, some people under the same you know rubric of defunding are talking about you know reimagining. The police, you know, just getting rid of it and, and restructuring public safety. That that sounds very good. I mean, is it is it feasible without a thoroughgoing social revolution? It, the, the the hard part is from the ruling class standpoint. Yeah, you have to you you have to oppress the, the people who are you know most likely to rebel, especially when uh, they're they're winning victory after victory right now. Yeah, I think that is a important question to have in mind. That basic question of the function of the police and a racist and capitalist society and maintaining class hierarchies and racial hierarchies. Um, you know, the, the other thing that's just sort of like the institutional power of police departments and police unions in the politics of cities, um, you know, this sort of insurmountable barrier to police reform has been something that I didn't, ever really think that we would see threatened at all but all of a sudden within the course of a few weeks it now looks like this house of cards that can be uh you know now is under threat by social movements and much fewer people actually support the police than than we thought there seems to be a real opening for smashing or changing or breaking some of that institutional power that policing has in this country 
yeah, yeah. Th this this has been very surprising, and, and it's because it's so sudden, uh, and it reaches so deeply within the, the white population. I don't think anybody knew, you know, how deeply it would reach within the, the white population. I was listening to a 538 podcast very recently, and uh, uh, Claire Malone just said, well, you know, it's like a lot of Americans just don't like cops, yeah. right? Uh, and that's that's that 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 seemed to me to, to summarize a, a good deal of it. Yeah, because there is such a um, mass support for Black Lives Matter, is stopping police violence, and so forth. That's given, I think, a lot of politicians cover that they did not have before. That they could, like, you know, you know, say to the police unions, "No, you know, I'm not going to do everything you want." There were, you know, like in New York, classic case. You have a social democratic, you know, so supposedly very progressive mayor. Blasio, and he came in, you know, with all kinds of talk to reform the police, and he became just cowed by them. Uh, his career as a politician has rested on not pissing off the police too much. And the only thing that can stop that from the standpoint of his career is if he, he's put in a position, well, his career depends on not being an apologist and a lackey for the, the police union. So while there is this function that the police serve in maintaining um, terror and oppression against um, oppressed peoples in our country. Um, the question of what sort of reforms or radical demands can be put into action really hinges upon whether this institutional power that the police have over politics and cities and localities can be broken. I mean, this is sort of like a contingent question about the four balances of power and and various places, right? Right. I mean, it's conceivable that we're going to get a resurgence of the, the KKK and so forth, as, as we've been getting. If the movement against the police brutality is even more successful, you, you might you might have widespread changes, but th that drive to, to keep the population in, in, you know, in fear, to terrorize it, that's not going to go away. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to radically restructure what official law enforcement is in this country. And, and there's all kinds of other situations situations too where you basically have a, a situation where there's just a continual fight going on between people who want the police to have power and, and people who are limiting their power and, and, and revolving you know whenever there's a unjustifiable homicide or whatever they call it you know I mean we're already seeing basically real-time reactions that are getting somewhere to Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta and so forth I mean people are holding the cops feet to the fire now this could continue and creates a very unstable situation but but i i mean i i don't think that cutting police budgets and or you know like sensitivity training and you know body cams and police uh, a database where you see who's been uh, thrown out of the force for undue force ban on chokeholds these things are are just window dressing they're, they're not they're not going to do anything i mean what will do something is if you begin to get convictions of cops for for, for killing people and, and, and so forth. But that takes getting rid of this so-called qualified immunity, which makes them almost almost untouchable. And it requires either a change in suburban white juries, not getting the, the venue changed in a lot of these cases where you know they, they, they kill somebody in, in the urban area and then they get the venue changed to people defending the, the cops. They, they get the venue changed to, to, to some you know suburban rural area with all these white people who 
just want the, the, the cops to do their dirty work for them, and they do it, and they, they, they let them off the hook. That happens in, in an inordinate number of cases. So short of, like, a real solution to, to any problem, you know, there, there probably can be stuff done to keep the police from just engaging in wanton terror all the time as just standard practice. They, they can be, you know, made to look over their shoulder and think twice, you know. That kind of pressure can be put. But So I don't want to say that the, the structural problem or the function of the cops to keep people down, that that precludes any, any positive change here. I, I, I don't want to say that. I, it's, not what I, it's not what I think. It's just um, you have to think of what can be done, I guess, short of, like, solving a problem, right? That, that's the difference, is, is that within capitalism, especially U.S. capitalism, which is just drenched, wherein the race issue and the class issue are one issue, and they've always been one issue. In a, situa- in a situation like that, you're not, you're not going to solve the, the, the problem of police violence within the capitalist system. But, but there are things that can be done to weaken the, the absolute power that the cops have been displaying for you know, decades now. Well, I'm sure we could talk about this topic all day, but we do need to get on to our main segment, which is our conversation with Belgian Marxist Rule Vanderpool about his debate with Paul Cockshot about Marx's theory of value. So, Rule, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. So glad you're having me. So we invited you on the podcast today to talk about this debate you've been having with Paul Cockshot, the so-called Marxist economist, about the labor theory of value. And I've read the debate, I've read your contributions, I think they're fantastic, but I don't know much about you. So can you tell me and other people, you know, who you are, where you're from? Yeah, so uh, I'm a political activist from Belgium. Um, I'm affiliated with the Workers' Party of Belgium, which is a Marxist political party. Um, I'm working for the parliamentary group of uh, the Workers' Party, and I'm also involved with the educational department, uh, in which I mostly uh, studied uh, courses on uh, political economy. How did you and, and Andrew uh, make, connect with each other? So ever since a few years ago when I wrote an email to him about his work on uh, reclaiming Marxist capital, um, we've been corresponding back and forth on a series of issues. Um, and so now um, when I wrote this article uh, responding to Cockshot, I asked Andrew's opinion. Um, because, well, most of the stuff in there is, uh, draws heavily on Andrew's work. Um, and so, yeah, he, he invited me to the podcast. Yeah, I thought it was a very impressive piece of work. Thanks. Yeah, I thought you really put the argument together well and supported it really well with all this documentation of quotes from Capital. Thanks a lot. So let's get into it here. You, your article is called Paul's Theory and Marx's Theory of Value, A Response. And Paul refers to... Paul Cockshot. Uh, in case listeners don't know who Paul Cockshot is, can you tell them who he is? Yeah, so Cockshot is a, a computer scientist. Uh, he's also a Marxist publicist uh, from Scotland. So he's known primarily uh, in the leftist movement for his work on socialist economic planning. So I think somewhere in the early 90s, he wrote a book called Towards a New Socialism, uh, together with a guy named Alan Cottrell, who was an economist. Um, I think it's an excellent book, by the way. At least I think everyone should read it. I think it's by far the most the most interesting stuff you can read about economic planning, even though uh, it's far from perfect. But apart from this work on economic planning, Cockshot also writes a lot of stuff about value theory, about Marx's value theory, 
uh, and the role value plays in economics. And that's where I think he gets a lot of stuff wrong, uh, but specifically that he gets Marx really wrong. When I think of Paul Cockshot, I think of this singular obsession he has that to, in showing that there is empirical proof for the, the labor theory of value. It's an idea that I think probably has some appeal to people at first, but as hopefully we'll demonstrate here in this podcast, there are a lot of problems with this notion, actually. Um, so let's jump right into it. Um, the article is about the so-called labor theory of value, and you argue there that there are at least two contrasting theories here. There's Marxist theory and there's Cockshot's theory. How do they differ? Yeah, so first of all, uh, Cockshot claimed that his theory and Marx's theory are in fact the same thing. Uh, or even that there's only one labor theory of value, the labor theory of value. Um, and I think that's kind of the problem. So now for Marx, his theory of value says that the value of a commodity is determined by the average labor time currently needed to reproduce a commodity. Um, so yeah, that's the definition. Uh, his definition is right there in the first chapter of volume one of Capital, uh, which he does call the the a chapter on the theory of value uh, in his introduction. So that's Marx's value theory. It's really, I think, as simple as that. Um, of course, his theory of capitalism as a whole goes into a lot of other stuff, but I think that's about it as far as value is concerned. Now, Cockshut says kind of the same thing, so that the value of a commodity is determined by the average labor time needed to produce it. But he adds something else to this. So he adds that according to the labor theory of value, uh, each commodity exchanges with other commodities in proportion to that value. Um, so that commodities prices are proportional to value. So for example, um, if it takes two hours to bake a bread uh, and four hours to build a table, uh, leaving aside the price of inputs, uh, the average price, price of the tables uh, would be the double of the price of bread. So I think that's just not Marx's theory, just simply not there in his work. Yeah, I mean, it actually was historically a theory that Adam Smith suggested may have held true at a very, very primitive state of economic development, that early and rude state of society. But, you know, Adam Smith didn't think it held true in capitalism. David Ricardo didn't think it held true. Karl Marx didn't think it held true. Um, the only people who think it holds true are, I, I don't think they even think it holds true. I don't think there's anybody who think it holds true. Yeah, and like Marx also says, or was it Engels uh, in uh, an addendum or an introduction to, to volume three, that in fact, before capitalism, when there was simple commodity production, this might have been true. But uh, as soon as you have capital, it's just, right. it doesn't work that way. Yes. Yeah, so, so rule. Why do you think this is an important issue? I mean, we're talking not just to economists here, or you know, specialists in value theory. We're involved with the general public. Your work is, you know, political for the general public. Why do you think the issue is important? And indeed, you know, you wrote a whole major article, in my view, about this. Why? What, what motivated you to write that article? What, what's the, the overriding importance of this issue? Yeah, so well, there's, there's several things there. So what motivated me? Well, to begin with, uh, Cockshot asked me to. So uh, he offered to put it up on his blog as a guest post. So that's uh, kind of a generous offer I couldn't refuse. Um, but apart from that, well, I was first I was arguing against Cockshot's position uh, in the comment section of his Facebook page. 
Um, and then suddenly he published an article in which he claims that I say that uh, Marx didn't have a labor theory of value at all. So yeah, I never claimed that and I didn't like that. So I decided to put up my arguments um, in a more systematic form. Um, and so that's where the article came out. Now that's what motivated me. So why is this important? Well, I think first of all, it's just important for science as such. So if you have two scientists who have completely different theories with completely different predictions about reality, it's just nonsense to pretend that they're saying the t same thing. So it doesn't advance any anybody. It doesn't uh, bring bring anything uh, positive to neither political movement, neither scientific understanding. Um, you just get no results with this kind of attitude. So I think that's the scientific part. I think on the political side, um, I don't really go into that in my article, but I think Cockshot's theory of value um, also has serious implications uh, in how, we, how a socialist society can regulate production. So I think uh, Cockshot, I think um, Marx would have said he's a, a value fetishist. Um, so Marx talks about commodity fetishism, which, which is actually the same thing. Um, so he, he has this idea that value is an eternal thing that has a huge impact on every kind of society. Um, and I think that just maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but at least it's not what Marx thinks. And I think politically it leads to seriously wrong um, ideas about, first of all, how capitalism functions. Um, and how we can combat capitalism, and second of all, uh, on how we can build uh, socialism. So one of Cockshock's main preoccupations is to defend the labor theory of value, as he refers to it. Um, but since, as you pointed out in the article, his theory isn't really Marxist theory, which, which of these theories is he defending? Or does his defense of the labor theory of value perhaps serve to defend both of them at the same time? Yeah, um, so as I said, um, Marx and Cockshot both say that the value of a commodity is determined by labor time. Um, but Cockshot adds that commodities' average prices are proportionate to that value. So that's contrary to Marx. Um, now, I think uh, Cockshot honestly believes, um, at least that's what he says, so who am I to, to deny this, um, that um, Marx's theory about capitalism as a whole remains intact if you, if you, um, if you interpret his value theory the way Cockshot does. Um, so I think he also, uh, he also deduces from that that um, if, you, if he can prove that empirically, empirically prove that value, the value theory is correct, he thinks he proves Marx, but the way in which he proves value theory is just not Marx's theory. So I think he's wrong about that. Um, I think he's wrong about um, the role value theory plays in Marx's uh, theory. So um, yeah, I think he doesn't actually defend them at the same time, uh, even if he thinks so. Um, so he kind of thinks that he's saving the, the essence of Marx's theory um, but I don't think that's what he's doing. Right. I mean, he's actually extremely critical of, of Marx. Uh, you know, I've written about his stuff, and he says, you know, Marx was just wrong. 
you know, that the, the deviations of commodities prices from the commodities values, you know, is an important issue. It just says Marx was wrong about that. Uh, and that's not a minor theme to, 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 to Marx. That's the strange thing, I think, uh, in debating with Cockshot is so he's presenting his theory as if he's um, defending Marx. But at other places, he openly criticizes Marx. He says, yeah, Marx is wrong about this and that. And I think uh, we should correct him this and that way. Um, so when he's writing to a scientific audience, he seems to be open about the fact that what he's saying is not what Marx is saying. But as soon as you go onto his blog, onto his Facebook page, actually he's claiming that what he says is what Marx said. And that's just, yeah, that's just not true. So you write about that in your piece. You talk about how Cockshot seems to be determined to force Marx into being a supporter of Cockshot's theory of value. How does he do that? What's his approach? Yeah, so by force, I actually mean he's, he just he, he goes on interpreting. So he builds up an interpretation of Marx, I think in a very, very strange way, to make it seem that Marx says what he says he said. Um, so I'm going to give a, a couple of examples. So, for example, in volume three of Capital, uh, Marx says, and everybody acknowledges this, that in fact commodities don't exchange at their values, that they exchange, uh, they tend to exchange at prices uh, of production, uh, which equalize the rate of profit, so that's not values. And so he goes, he introduces sort of a rupture between volume three of capital and volume one and two. So he says, yeah, in volume one and two of capital, Marx had a very simple uh, theory of value that says that uh, commodities exchange at their values, that prices are equal to average, uh, average prices are equal to values. Um, and for some reason, he dropped this in volume three, um, but he shouldn't have, uh, and he should have stuck to what he wrote in volume one and two. So that's actually, he makes Marx contradict himself between volume three and one and two. And he says, well, we drop the one and we keep the other two. Um, so that's one thing, I think it's not really um, a sound interpretative strategy, but I think a bigger problem for him even still is that even in volume one of Capital, Marx says at, at least three different instances that in reality, um, average prices are not equal to values. So um, I think there is, there's a footnote at the end of chapter five, there's another one in chapter nine. Uh, there's also a place where he says that, yeah, uh, um, industries that produce a lot of surplus value don't reap a lot of profit. Um, so, yeah, his response to these passages in volume one is saying that, yeah, Marx was just being dishonest. So he actually literally said this in, in one of his uh, responses on Facebook uh, at one of my comments. So that's the second thing. So he has the rupture with volume two of capital. He has the contradiction or the dishonesty of Marx in volume one. Um, then there is a letter of Marx to Engels uh, in 1865, I think, uh, two years before volume one of Capital was published. Uh, Marx writes, yeah, I've, I've, I've solved all the theoretical problems in the first three books. Um, and so, yeah, this means that for Marx, this was one theory. There was no distinction between volume three and volume one of Capital. He held the same theory throughout his three books. Um, so it's just completely in contradiction with what, what Cockshot claims Marx said. 
Um, and he, he just, so by force, just to come back to the question, I mean, he, he construes an interpretation in which he makes Marx say things that contradict himself, that make him dishonest, that makes no sense, that make no sense if you read other material by Marx. So just a really, really bad interpretative strategy. But it, was, it does some other stuff. So it takes uh, passages from Marx, where Marx very remotely touches on the subject of uh, the relation between value and price. And then he inflates these passages as though they confirm his, so Kaksha's theory. Um, so one example, there is a passage in chapter 9 or 10 of Capital Volume 3, where Marx says that uh, changes in values of commodities dominate changes in prices. I think it's uh, chapter 9. Um, then Kokshat says that, well, if changes in values are the only thing that determine changes in prices, then the two are necessarily proportioned to each other. But that just, that, yeah, that, that's just not the same thing. So to dominate doesn't mean that it's the only thing that determines. So Marx nowhere says that changes in values are the only thing that determine prices. He also talks about equalization of the rate of profit through competition, supply and demand, the movement of capital between industries, so on and so forth. The strange thing about this specific example is that precisely in the chapter where Marx uh, says this is the chapter where he develops his theory of prices of production, which says that average prices are not equal to value. So as far as interpretative strategies go, I think that's that's yeah, I think that's the worst you can yeah, get. Yeah, it's like the textbook definition of cherry picking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, Rule, you've you've been emphasizing that the way that Cockshot argues, what he's doing purports to be a defense of the labor theory of value, but it turns out to be an attack on Marx. He says Marx contradicted himself, he accuses Marx of being dishonest, and the whole way he presents Marx seems like Marx was just some guy flailing around not knowing what he was doing. Um, but let, I want to leave aside, you know, the fact that some people might not like that he's attacking Marx. That's a subjective consideration, whether you like Marx, whether you like Marx being attacked. The question is, with regard to uh, Cockshot's argumentative strategies, apart from those subjective considerations of whether we like what he's doing or not, is there anything wrong objectively with the way that Cockshot is arguing here? I think so, yes. So, um, well, Cockshot... It's not, he's not the first guy who's trying to interpret an author. So there's a lot of people, a lot of smart people who developed a, developed a lot of strategies to interpret authors. And there's uh, a broad consensus in the scientific field of text interpretation of uh, exegesis. There's a principle of scientific exegesis that's called the criterion of coherence. This criterion, actually, it says that, well, if you're trying to interpret an author, if you're trying to get what he meant when, when he was writing what he wrote, it's just not enough to say, well, that's what he wrote, so uh, that's what he said. People can interpret what a guy wrote in a lot of different ways. You can't just say, no, we should interpret a guy that way because that's what he wrote, because 10 different people will have 10 different interpretations. So... This criterion, it says that the way to interpret, correctly interpret an author is the way in which he makes sense, is the way in which he's not contradicting himself, is the way in which the things he says are connected, make sense as a whole. For example, for Marx, you know, this is a guy who was not an idiot. 
is a guy with a, a doctoral thesis in philosophy. He was a guy who studied economics all his life, who was in political uh, discussion with a lot of other guys, um, who was really thorough. Um, and so, first of all, saying that a guy like this constantly contradicted himself, jumped from one theory to another, uh, was writing one thing in uh, Capital Volume 1, um, while simultaneously, because Marx wrote his different volumes of Capital almost simultaneously, while simultaneously writing in Volume 3 of Capital the complete, completely contradictory statements, a completely contradictory theory, that just completely implausible. So that's, that's, there's a, that goes against all standard scientific practice of how you should interpret an author. It's, so that's the criterion of coherence. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's objectively, objectively one of the standard scientific method, methods to interpret an author. And Cockshut is just not doing that. It's just, it's, yeah, like, like Andrew says, he's kind of saying that Marx was just flailing around, that we were just yabbering this and then yabbering that and saying one thing at one moment and another thing the next day and then again the first thing and then something else. Well, that's just, it's just not a scientific way of interpreting an author. So why do you think that Cockshot is so determined to interpret Marx in this way that seems so hard to do if you actually read Marx's texts? Is it that he's just a really sciencey guy and so he assumes that you know, empirical proof is like the, the pinnacle of, of you know, theory and everything else doesn't matter? Or is it about the transformation problem? Is it just all just an attempt to avoid the transformation problem by saying, well, prices of production and average prices don't really uh, occur in the real world, so we don't have to worry about the transformation problem. Yeah, there's a lot of impact there. So there's, I think there's several several things. I want to quote something he wrote uh, in his article, uh, which my article's response. He writes that the insistence that Marx had a different theory than, than his theory, Nankoff's theory, is rather strange. Why would you want to claim that Marx was not a supporter of what we know to be testable and correct scientific theory? So I think that's a really, really odd statement. So he's saying, well, so yeah, so so empirics, empirical evidence says this so Marx said it because then Marx is correct so it's completely the other way around so it's like we, we look at reality we look at empirical evidence and if we think uh, the empirical evidence says this well then our favorite author he must have said it too so I think I don't know what was in his mind when he wrote that but I think it more or less confirms uh, your suggestion uh, Brandon so he wrote it on other, in other places so generally his theory is about avoiding transformation problems so he's saying yeah well uh, transformation problem is a real problem um, or maybe not even that so maybe it might be a real problem might be uh, unimportant might be existing non-existing whatever it's not important because empirically uh, we can prove marks but yeah the problem is empirically that doesn't prove marks it proves another theory it proves Cockshaw's theory so yeah for the rest i don't want to go into a trial of intentions but i think yeah obviously there are a lot of more marxists around there than Cockshotists. So if he can claim that he has the proof proving Marx's theory, he will have a much wider readership than when he's just saying, well, I'm just proving Cox's theory. So, Right. And when you said that the, the empirical evidence confirms Cockshot's theory, that's based on an assumption that I don't think you hold that Cockshot's empirical evidence is legitimate. We'll talk about that later, but I, I just wanted to, to make clear that you, you weren't saying that the actual empirical evidence actually shows Cockshot's theory to be correct. No, no, no. And I, and I can say a thing or two in, in, in a few moments, if you like. 
Right. But before we do that, here's here's the issue that like has been uppermost in my mind in dealing with people like Cockshot and dealing with all the rest of these people as well. You say something that I completely agree with in your article. You write, quote, like anyone else, Marx has a right to his own theory. I propose that we let Marx have his and let Paul have his and let both contend so that we can see which one better stands the test of reality. That's what you wrote. And to me, that just seems like sound scholarly scientific procedure it seems incontrovertible but what does it seem like the cockshot do you think he'll accept your point that marx is entitled to his own theory just like cockshot and everybody else's yeah well i i seriously doubt that so he has um, an attitude like yeah well we should act like science marx wrote this and that and the essence of what he wrote is this and that and i can prove this with my empirical evidence so leaving aside because we're going into that uh, in a moment but leaving aside if it's true or not um he's just he's reducing marx's theory to what he thinks is the essence of marx's theory and there's not a shred of doubt in my mind that when he'll respond maybe maybe he'll agree that yeah well this is in fact not what marx wrote he actually he did contradict himself he did say this and yeah he, he didn't hold that um values and prices are proportionate um but he'll say and there's no doubt in my mind um that yeah the essence of marx's theory is in volume one of capital and this essence remains intact if you um if prices are in fact proportionate to values contrary to what marx believed um and it would uh it would prove it the fundamentals fundamentals of his theory and so yeah that's actually cockshot deciding for marx what's the essence of his theory bingo you've hit the nail exactly on the head okay this is i was going to editorialize but but you hit the nail exactly on the head and this shows that what cockshot means by science is unthinking empiricism yeah yeah exactly okay it's not science at all okay in other words Unthinking empiricism means you just accept whatever appears to you, the categories that, that strike you as as reality, and you don't question your categories. You don't justify them. So what appears to Cockshot to be um, the essence, that is the essence. Why? Well, it, it's, it's a, it doesn't get tested. It doesn't get clarified. You know, uh, it's just this is this this is the essence. Okay, he he. This is why he has like no respect for either Kant or 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 Hegel or anybody because he does not understand how fundamentally dogmatic it is just to accept the categories that come to you uh, as as the true reality of things just accept them at face value. If he's going to if he's going to claim, you know, that this or that is the essence of Marx, he has to have. Uh, criteria for distinguishing what was essential from what is not. He has to show that those are Marx's own criteria. Uh, he hasn't begun to do the work that he needs to do to justify any claim about what's essential. Yeah, exactly. And so, in fact, the the whole the whole point why we got into this debate uh, before he wrote his article against my arguments before I responded to him was uh, exactly a, a debate about uh, Hegel about dialectics about the need for dialectics um so yeah i think marx marx at a certain point i don't know where he wrote it he wrote and i think it's very it's, it's a very clear language and, and very true uh, it's, if appearance would directly coincide with essence so if the empirical facts as you see them would directly explain fundamentally how the world works 
all science would be would be superfluous. I think it's in the Trinity Formula chapter of Volume Three. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. I think it's in, in Capital Volume Three and uh, maybe in the Trinity chapter. So, yeah. so that's yeah. that's precisely. I think that's the reason you have science because the things you see, you can see the sun go down. Yeah, but we all know it's not the sun going down; it's the Earth turning around on its axis, on its axis. So, yeah, if you just accept empirical facts at face value without questioning them, without putting them in a broader hole and and building a theory that's testable, of course, against this, yeah, you just you're not explaining anything; you're just repeating what you're seeing. You know, Cockshot claims that the empirical evidence, as he calls it, confirms this theory, and he puts a lot of stress on this alleged evidence. But if we assume for the sake of argument that his evidence is legitimate, why do you think he is so concerned to emphasize this evidence and downplay these theoretical issues and these interpretive issues? You know, like, if we assume for the sake of argument that his evidence is legitimate, does that render debates about theoretical and interpretive issues irrelevant? Yeah, uh, absolutely not. I think, um, and I think there's there's several reasons. Um, I think first of all, uh, if Cockshot's empirical evidence is uh, legitimate, if it were legitimate, then yeah, Marx is just simply proven wrong, and then which which just acknowledge that. So um, I think Cockshot claims that his evidence proves that Marx is right, but it does the exact opposite. So I wouldn't think that's a very scientific attitude. As I said before, I think. Generally, uh, regarding science, this is wrong. Uh, this leads us to wrong political conclusions. So it's it's not at all irrelevant. So it's also linked to what I said before about uh, Cockshot deciding for Marx what's the essence of his theory. So yeah, if he 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 absolutely wants to prove Marx uh, his version of Marx, um, and he thinks he's proving it um and yeah i think that's that's not yeah in any way theoretical um the theoretically sound so no i don't think it's irrelevant it, it's just two different theories if you prove one you disprove the other if you prove the other you disprove one hey in just a few moments we're going to continue this conversation with rule about marx's theory of value but first, a few words from Andrew Clark of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors our podcast. Hello, this is Andrew Clark, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. 
We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So we promised we would come to this issue of Kachuk's uh, supposed empirical evidence for the labor theory of value. Of course, as you, you know, we mentioned before, you, we don't really need to discuss this in order to make the argument that you've made in your paper that you're making here about his bad interpretation of Marx. Um, but we, sh- we, sh- we should get into it because I'm sure people are curious about what his evidence is and, and what, what we should make of it. I say in my article, I think I just mentioned it in a footnote, that I don't think uh, his, his evidence is legitimate. Um, I think, yeah, Cockshot, he presents a lot of data uh, that show that, in fact, when you compare the total price uh, going around in industries uh, in terms of money, that is very strongly correlated, in fact, with the value in terms of the labor that's used in this industry. So he presents this data, which at face value, in fact, I think it's, it's not like he's making any mathematical errors. I think the, the correlation is there. Well, there's no question about that the correlation is there at face value. But the problem is, yeah, what, what we talked about is it's not because there is data saying something at face value that just that's all there is to the story. So the problem specifically here is that uh, the data he presents, they just they're just not they can be used to prove what he wants to prove. So there are several problems. I think Andrew has wrote a lot of very convincing stuff about this <clears throat> in a few articles. Uh, in which he, he criticized Gokshot, Gokshot answered, but I think his answers are, are entirely unconvincing. But the major problem of the data that Gokshot uses is that um, it's highly aggregated government data about industries. So what, what does that mean? So for example, um, a hypothetical example, it's not directly from, from the data he uses, but Let's take the bread industry. So the bread industry, guys breaking bread. So what do you include in this industry? Do you include the, the wheat industry? Um, do you agriculture? Do you include the, the mill industry? Um, do you or do you just include the baking of the bread itself? So what government data agencies do is they just they just lump together all different kinds of companies which they think belong to the same industry. And they create a big melting pot of a huge number of companies. And what happens if you do this is that the differences between prices and values, and in fact any difference, it's just averaged out. It just, for example, just imagine that baking the bread is 
very labor intensive. Uh, there's a lot of direct uh, human labor going around, while the mill industry is very capital in intensive. It's mostly by machines. Um, it's, there's almost no one working there, just a guy who's twisting some buttons. Um, so if you lump these two together in the same industry, yeah, of course you average out the difference between values and prices. It's just yeah, you get you just get a mean. You don't you don't get any information at all about the actual correlation between between the values and the prices of commodities. So what Cockshot needs to prove his theory, um, it's it's not in the aggregated data. What he needs is the disaggregated data, the data on industry level. He has to be able on on company level, excuse me. So he has to be able to compare, for example. Um, uh, a shell uh, production facility, uh, the prices at which they sell their, their refined oil with uh, a random bakery on the corner of the street. Yeah, he, he, needs the, he needs the numbers, the data on these two specific companies, but not just the data of the entire petrochemical industry, the data of the entire bread industry or whatever you call it, industry. It's, it's, it just can be used to prove what he wants it to prove. So he can go on and on and on about the fact that, yeah, the data shows this and the data shows that, and yeah, the data does in fact show that. But the conclusions he, he gets from this, yeah, these are just not the things that you can conclude from the data. The, the, the problem is that when um, you look at the data, the, these aggregate industry level um, figures, the, the total value of the petrochemical industry, uh, the total price of the output of the petrochemical industry and the baked goods industry, and you say well, they're highly correlated. That's not what, first of all, people mean by saying values and prices are highly correlated. When people say values and prices are highly correlated, we mean per unit, okay? The, the, the value of a loaf of bread, the price of a loaf of bread, the, the price of a barrel of oil, and the value of a barrel of oil per unit of, of, of the commodity. Uh, and when you aggregate things, you're going to get very high correlations because what you're then doing is comparing large industries' values and prices and small industries' values and prices. So as you increase the size of the industry, they're producing more stuff, right? So they're producing more value. They're obtaining a higher price. So basically, all the evidence tells us is that the total value of output and the total price of output are big in big industries, and they're small in small industries. Uh, and there's a, there's an article I put on my website, a parody of what these people do. I showed the same thing. You could supposedly provide knockdown uh, empirical evidence that the major driver of income is Christianity. I call, it, I call it the Christianity theory of income. You look at states of the United States. I took the actual data. You know, in states with a lot of Christians, the statewide income is very, very high. In states with not many Christians, statewide income is very low. Well, why? In big states, highly popular states, there's a lot of Christians, and so, you know, there's also a lot of people and a lot of production. There, there's high income. In tiny states without a lot of people, you don't have many Christians, you don't have much income, okay? But when you hear that, you know, Christianity is the major determinant of, of, of income, what you, what you are really saying is that on a per capita basis, per person, income per person is the main, uh, the percentage of people in the state who are Christian is the main driver of income per person in the state. And that's just not true at all. So I, I did basically a point by point parody, uh, and it's on my website, showing that using their per 
procedures where you just aggregate everything and you're you're correlating large this with large that and small this with small that. You could do that with things that are completely cockamamie, um, you know, as well as what they're doing. You know, you could you could supposedly prove the main the main driver of of, of income is, is Christianity. It's just, it's just not true. Right. So if cockshot can empirically prove his theory, how does that relate to Marx's theory? Yeah, very little, actually, I think. I think um, so for cockshot, this is the alpha and the omega of proving Marx's theory empirically. So if you can prove this theory that prices are on average, commodity prices are on average proportional to values, then you vindicate Marx. And if this, if you can prove this empirically, you can prove Marx. Given that that's not Marx's theory, well, the data we should use or should not use to prove or disprove Cockshaw's theory, well, the, they're just not the data we need to prove or disprove Marx's theory. So, um, yeah, th both theories don't require the same evidence to be proven. Um, and no, I don't think at all that it's impossible to uh, support or undermine Marx's theory empirically. But I think the way Cockshot is trying to do it, whether he's using the right or the wrong data, but the way he's trying to do it is just not the way you should test Marx's theory. Right. Okay. So, I, I mean, I suspect that, that, that people who are sympathetic to Cockshot would say that the, you know, you don't believe in empirical uh, science and testing theories and so forth, but that's not what you're saying. Um, no, you know, no, no. something we, we quoted earlier, you say, let both Marx's and Cockshot's theories contend so we can better see which one better stands the test of reality. So you're not rejecting empirical testing of theories, ascertaining which ones better stand the test of reality. You affirm the need for that. Exactly. But you're saying that the cockshot's way of doing this is not acceptable. So the question is, can you suggest other ways to test cockshot's theory and or Marx's theory? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think it is, it is a scientific principle that theory, um, whatever theory about whatever uh, subject, a scientific theory, it's only a scientific theory if you can make predictions with it and test these predictions or predictions or if you can explain the data with it um, and if you can test this against empirical reality. So if you have a theory which is just completely disconnected from, from anything anything empirical, yeah, well, you it's, it's just words. You can explain anything with this, just a bunch of words. So a scientific theory should be tested empirically. I completely agree with this. Um, but yeah, Cockshot seems to believe, and I think he's not the only one uh, thinking this. I think um, actually uh, Bohm Bawerk, who was an Austrian, uh, was a founder of the Austrian School of Economics. He said the same thing about Marx. He says, well, Marx starts out by saying that prices are proportional to values. He's making a logical argument right at the start of capital. He should have made an empirical argument. And he, if he had made an empirical argument, he would have seen that he was wrong. So, so Bombarek thought Marx was wrong about uh, prices equaling values. Uh, Cockshot thinks that's exactly what Marx said. So, yeah, they say, yeah, your theory is it's just not falsifiable. So the problem with this is that 
scientific theories are actually almost never tested by by empirically testing their assumptions they're tested by empirically testing their conclusions their predictions about reality so um yeah for example um uh, the theory of uh einstein's theory of relativity one of the the implications of this theory or the ways to interpret this theory is the assumption that actually there are not three dimensions but four dimension time time is the fourth dimension well you cannot empirically test if time is actually a four dimension what you can test are all the different results that come out of einstein's theory of relative uh, of general and, and and specific relativity so the same thing is true for marx's theory so his assumption about values being determined by socially necessary labor time by the average labor time to reproduce a commodity it's not something you can directly see in reality mark says it mark says yeah you if you go look at prices they won't be proportional to values but marx does go to a whole of a lot of conclusions about capitalist reality about capitalist economy that you can test um, and i think I wrote this in my article. I think the problem is that it's a highly um, controversial subject, but one of the most important conclusions, Marx calls it the most important law of political economics, is the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So when uh, you replace human labor, when you replace workers more and more by machines, when human labor is playing a smaller and smaller role in production, um, there will be a tendency of the rate of profit to fall. There are a lot of counter tendencies, but you can empirically observe these counter tendencies. So this is a theory that makes prediction about reality. Now, there are a lot of ifs and buts and shoulds because I won't go into the details because, for example, the theory doesn't say that the rate of profit should necessarily fall always in the long run. Um, but you can check my article if you want more details about this. I think more, uh, Andrew's book, uh, The Failure of Capitalist Production, um, is also uh, great about this. There's, I refer to an article um, by Andrew uh, and some uh, and some other guys about Heinrich. One of those other guys was Brendan Cooney. <laughs> yeah, so Andrew and, and Brendan and uh, some other guys um, about Heinrich, who is a Marx scholar, who did say, yeah, Marx predicted that rate of profit always falls in the long run. Well, that's just not the case. But leaving aside these specifics of the theory, um, there is a, a tendency of a rate of profit to fall according to Marx, and this tendency is directly related to his theory of value. So we can look at the data and we can check if this tendency holds in reality. Um, it's, the it's not an assumption of Marx's theory, it's his conclusion. But if his conclusion holds, well, then this means that his assumptions were probably correct. So, yeah, I think that's one point where Cockshot is, um, I think is, yeah, just, I don't know really why he says this, because, yeah, as I said, Almost all scientific theories are tested by testing their conclusions, not their assumptions. Um, one thing he did say in his article uh, when he argued against me is that, well, yeah, but the neoclassical economics can also explain uh, in a logical, current way the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Um, well, 
that might be the case or it might not be. I'm not an expert in neoclassical economics. But the point is, yeah, well, if that's the case, then you just add different predictions, look at both theories and just check where they yield different predictions and test those. So, and if, if, if two theories, just imagine, if neoclassical theory and Marxist political uh, economic theory yield exactly the same predictions in all circumstances, well, yeah, then they're just, just one as good as another. But I highly doubt that that's the case. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is not uh, something that's obscure. This is something extremely well known. This is basically something that every economist knows and people learn very early on in their economic training because what people typically confront in, in when they start to learn economics is you get a lot of models with a lot of very unrealistic assumptions. Yeah. And there's a tendency to criticize the assumptions for lack of realism. And the hardline position is that the assumptions don't matter. It, it's irrelevant to criticize the assumption, the assumptions because the point of a theory is to make predictions. Uh, and if a theory on the basis of unrealistic assumptions is able to make you know, strong and accurate predictions, then it's done its job. Uh, yeah. So there's nothing to criticize there. there. There's a debate around these issues, but the, the, the basic point that the, the, the point is to make predictions or, you know, about past events, so-called retrodictions, uh, and that that is the test of the theory, that is basically universally accepted. You know, the only, the only question about unrealistic assumptions is, you know, does the realism of the assumptions help you to make good predictions or, 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 or not? That's the only real debate. But, but this whole idea of, like, proving your assumptions is just, it's, it's an artifact of just a failure to understand any, any scientific practice. Yeah, precisely. So, so the, the whole of, of modern physics, the whole of quantum mechanics is built on completely unrealistic assumptions. But given that they prove that given that they yield very accurate predictions, given that a lot of the technology we use today is based on these theories, they work. Yeah, well, they're the best theories we have. So it's not about the assumptions. It's about the predictions and the conclusions. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for the podcast today. Rule, this has been a great interview. Well, thanks. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was a great experience. That's all the time we have for today's episode of Radio Free Humanity. Please stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org for more episodes. You can leave a comment. You can like the podcast. You can subscribe to it. And please share it far and wide.